welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. Thank you to FIU's Disability Resource Center for providing transcription services. In this episode, I talk with Pauline Green, Executive Director, and Mark Houston, Clinical Manager of the Alliance for GLBTQ Youth in Miami, Florida. They discuss the multiple aspects of the work they do with LGBTQ youth in Miami-Dade County, such as care coordination, clinical services, community education, training for service providers and educators, and policy change. We explore some key issues affecting LGBTQ youth, particularly safety and homelessness, as well as multiple forms of oppression, such as homophobia, transphobia, and racism. Mark and Pauline talk about how the Alliance builds community in a youth-led, affirming space that builds on the resiliency many LGBTQ youth already possess. We discuss the harm that can be done by social workers and clinicians who do not challenge heterosexism and cisgenderism. Pauline and Mark also share how they got into this work. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Hey, Pauline. Hey, Mark. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And just to kind of get things started, could you both talk about what you currently do? Sure. Thank you so much for having us, Shimon. We're really super excited to be here. Um, So uh, as you noted, I am the executive director of the Alliance for GLBTQ Youth. The Alliance serves, nurtures, and empowers LGBTQ youth across Miami-Dade. We do this through providing direct services to our young people and their families. Uh, This is in the clinical space, both as care coordination and individual counseling. And then we also work at the policy and systems change level, uh, directly working with uh, the systems themselves, so including the school district, um, homelessness, and other systems in Miami-Dade. Hey, Shimon. Thanks for having us. Happy Pride Month. Um, my, my pronouns are he, him, she, and her. Um, I'm the clinical manager of the Alliance for GLBTQ Youth, um, where I provide clinical supervision and direct individual counseling and group counseling and family support to LGBTQ youth across Miami-Dade and their families, along with our team um, of clinicians and care coordinators. Awesome. Thank you both again. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm really excited as well for this episode. There's so much to cover. And, you know, I think one thing I really am hoping that can come across because I know who's listening to the podcast, um, typically, you know, lots of social work students, social work educators, social workers, and it goes beyond social work as well. But, you know, when you think about the work you do on a daily basis and you think about what the main issues are that the young people you work with deal with, could you just kind of start by getting into some of those issues so that people can increase their understanding? We're going to have to like bat this back and forth. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's an enormously complicated question. It's not, it's not one, one thing by any means. I and mean, we were talking about the stigma of being lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, queer, gender fluid, and so on and so on and so on. We're talking about the stigma against mental health um, in general. We're talking about the the cultural stigma of race and ethnicity and how all of those are compounded on our youth. Um, Miami-Dade is a very unique 
demographic geographically. And so it's access to mental health care. It's access to affirmative medical care, insurance coverage in a, de- in a Republican state. It's so many uh, nuanced things that, ah. Yeah, I didn't really exactly exactly give you an easy one to start with. No. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Sorry about that. Right. It's, it's a incredibly complex. And the, the stigma that our young people face, the systems that are, are not informed, that are not competent in supporting our young people that aren't even aware that they aren't uh, actually embracing uh, and supporting our young people and identifying their needs. Um, so there's a, it's a lot to think about at both the macro level and then fortunately, right, we're able to do it at both the macro level and the micro level. So uh, through Mark and as a clinical manager, as an amazing clinician, as a trainer in our community, uh, and our team who's so passionate and dedicated to our young people and their families, right? We're able to um, do our best to be advocates for our young people at the policy level and then in directly, right, with their families um, and to help them to build their own advocacy skills uh, as well. So unique challenges, as Mark was saying, the, the stigmas uh, that exist uh, for our young folks, um, our young people experiencing homelessness at an incredibly disproportionate rate. So about 40% of young people who experience homelessness are LGBTQ. Um, and that is also as a result, um, in a number of cases, the family environments, right, that their families are not affirming. So there may be harm happening in the home. Young people run away uh, for their own safety um, or being pushed out or kicked out. Uh, and then also not having safe educational environments um, also just makes it more difficult for them to have any safe environment. So our work is to create um, resiliency with that in that young person um, so that they they can move and grow and reach their full potential. Uh, but, but it's rather complex. Again, we're at multiple levels. Yeah, and I think what I'm hoping for is we can break down some of that work. Maybe we can start at a micro level and then go bigger and get into the macro and policy work that you do. But let's just, you know, and I and I totally recognize that every young person you work with is different and a unique individual. Let's say, you know, a young person, first of all, how do they reach, how do they get in touch with you? Like, how do you connect? What are some of the ways they connect with you to start? We work very closely with the Miami-Dade County Public School System. And um, so they're an, a wonderful support to our LGBTQ youth in the school system. Uh, they have safe school liaisons, trust counselors, obviously they're school counselors. And so we work very closely through training and through referrals for those youth. Unfortunately, we also receive a lot of our youth um, through uh, hospitalizations, through youth who've been Baker Acted. I think it's, it's, um, it's important to understand that LGBTQ individuals through media, through social norms, through many other ways in which um, their identities are informed, um, are taught to hate themselves. They're told that they're, they don't fit in, that they're not accepted, that they, they, they don't have a future, that they don't have a place. Um, and so they're constantly working to find space, um, whether that's in the school system or in the home environment, in the family environment, extended family environment. 
And so obviously through that attempt, there's a lot of psychological distress that occurs. And so either they get uh, identified by a teacher, a school counselor, or their symptoms are so exacerbated that they want to cause harm to themselves. Um, so um, our, a lot of our referrals come through directly through the county public school system um, and through the hospital system. And of course, our referring partners. Um, we have a, a really wonderful group of community partners in Miami-Dade that are working across the county um, who we are working with as well in supporting um, our LGBTQ youth. I saw that you do care coordination, and then I know you do clinical services as well. So, you know, let's say you get into a youth connects with a young person connects with you, you know, where do you kind of, and again, recognizing that everyone's different, but where, what are some kind of like strategies or some things for people who are going to be doing this work and are going to work with LGBTQ youth families, you know, just some starting points of things that are really important that you would do as you approach that work with a young person? I think what is ultimately key initially is safety. Um, We don't have a right to out anybody or to label anybody, um, to push anybody to be somebody who they're not. And so navigating safety with our youth is really important. When we do our intakes of our youth, we want to know specifically who are they out to, what that level of outness is, what they're resource network, what that level of support actually looks like so that we know who is a safe person to discuss their identities with or not. Uh, Something that I often hear and something you may have heard me say before is that a conversation I often have with parents, because that's really key, is the parental support. Um, We know that youth, it's not uncommon for LGBTQ youth to be removed from their homes, to to be told that their identities are not valuable to the family. um, And Youth, LGBTQ youth are are constantly seeking safety, constantly seeking safety. And sometimes it's read as as being hypersensitive that, oh, you're just, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Your your identity, you don't have to tell everybody. You know, we don't have to always talk about it. You don't have to tell this person or that person. Oh, so what about this issue or that issue? Uh, But what what they're failing to realize is that their youth are constantly seeking safety. And so it's not that they're being hypersensitive to what they think is like the mundane of daily life of an adolescent um, or a child, but that they really feel uh, threatened. And that if a guardian can understand that that is what their child's experience is, and that's where the psychoed piece is really important, right? Um, when we're working with our youth, it's really important to incorporate the families when the youth is ready for that and when the families are ready for that. Because when you can build a level of understanding for that guardian and that family where that child has to exist in that space, in that network, if they can see it from a different perspective, if they can see their their value, their identity, their wholeness from a different perspective, then that relationship can continue to grow. So incorporating families into the work is really important, but when it's the time is right, when it's safe for the youth, when you've received that permission to do so. And that's really any collateral, any contact that you're working with. We have no right to out a youth. If they're not ready to have that conversation beyond you, you might be that singular person in the world that knows. And that happens in our school systems all the time. It's that one school counselor that they can go in or that school nurse they can go and sit and eat their lunch with. That's the only person in the world that knows, but it's that safe space. That was, I, I spent my lunches 
in the in the uh, administrative office. That's where I, that was my safe space. I answered phones. I did mimeographs. Remember that that big drum, <laughs> and like that's where I, I wasn't. <laughs> that's where I wasn't going to be bullied. Right. That's that was like the safe space for me. And so, if if you're that only person holding that space for them is going to be really important until they're ready. Also not making assumptions about what you think they are, who you think they are. Um, that a lot of the work that I do clinically is exploring all the possibilities and what meaning is for them behind different ideas and thoughts and behaviors. Because sexual orientation and gender identity is so specific to an individual and so dynamic that you can't make any assumptions about how somebody identifies um, or how fluid that might be or how that might change over time. And, and we need things to be so concrete in life that we make assumptions that these things need to be concrete and that they must have an answer or that they're too young to know. So that we give them that space and that flexibility to explore, to understand, to talk about, to be affirmed, to share, to ponder, just to have that conversation um, so that they can develop, right? This is all what they're going through. This is their process. LGBTQ youth have the right to develop along the same developmental timeline that their non-LGBTQ peers have. They reserve that right, and we hold that right for them. Right? That is ultimately the goal, that we uh, provide that space for them to do that. Mark, you know, when you, as you're sharing all that, I think about some of my students and their training and the different levels, right? Because there's the intensive clinical work that you're doing, and then there's more of the outreach. Uh, I'm not saying that's not clinical too, but there's different levels of work that needs to be done, right? And there's different levels of training that needs to happen. And there are very complex issues involved. The safety one, I'm so glad you talked about it. Obviously, if that's not there, all these other issues, you know, it's hard to do anything else, right? The young person's not going to want to share. If they don't feel safe, I mean, there's just so much involved. And I think about some of my students and I just think that, and just from stuff they've told me in terms of um, not really feeling prepared, you know, to work, to know what to say in some situations and thinking about what are some ways to increase that, right? So there's some things like we've talked about before about asking people their pronouns, like a basic or changing intakes to include that if it's not there. I'm thinking about things that organizations can do as well, you know, that we've talked about. And we even changed some of our forms based on your input. But I was wondering, you know, moving on, you know, continuing along the lines of safety, but also some other just kind of foundational key things that people need to keep in mind when working with LGBTQ youth? I think, so you're, you're, you're asking specifically, it sounds like about entry-level clinicians and or clinicians working for the first time with LGBTQ individuals. I think it's a good start. And I think, you know, in the future, we probably need to do like the next level as well. And there's people who probably are listening that are, that's where they're at, or they have sure. many years of experience. But I think predominantly that's who is going to get reached. Listening is people who right. really are like, I want to be able to do this work, but I'm not quite sure where to begin. 
or people who also assume that they can go do social work and then not work with this population, which that's something I say all the time is like, you never know someone's identity. So you can't make those assumptions that you can just go into this profession and you're not going to work with people who are, who are gay, who are queer, who are trans. Like you, you right. have to be ready to work with everybody. Yes, I agree with that. But I also think that we need to accept our limitations. And if we don't have that level of comfort, we should excuse ourselves from that work. And so, you know, there's that, the, the adage like, you know, fake it till you make it in terms of like other, other careers. I don't think that works in clinical work. And I don't think that works when you're, I don't think that works in clinical work. I think that people can read that very clearly. And so you're in clinical work, you are working with somebody about them. You know nothing about them. And so the moment you do something that is inappropriate, you misgender somebody, you give somebody a microaggression, they are going to be, they're going to be able to tell immediately, right? That you are not a safe person, that you don't have the skills to work with them. You do not have basic knowledge because it is an entire community, right? Upon community, upon community, upon community. Um, there are so many intricacies about the LGBTQ community that it's not something you can pretend you know about. So it's, I think it's important to accept your limitations and say that, you know, I, I haven't worked with, you know, trans people before. And so I need to share with you that that is the limitation of my clinical experience. And um, I'm happy to work with you, but there might be some additional training I need to do outside of this clinical space. And I might be saying things where I need you to share with me that I've said something maybe inappropriate or, you know, I need some accountability as well. And if that's not comfortable for you, I respect that. And maybe we can find you somebody better to work with. So accepting limitations is really important. There are a lot of people that are doing LGBTQ work with really wonderful intentions um, that is misguided either by their understanding of the community or actual haven't studied the clinical work. They don't really understand like an affirmative framework in working with LGBTQ um, folks. So I think the, the acceptance that you're not the expert is really, really important. And that goes with any minority population or population in general, right? Um, expressing those limitations. Those are really important points. And something I would add to it is just then not, and you said this, being willing to get additional training and not just take the position of like, well, I'm just going to refer out forever. As a clinician, you have a responsibility to um, get additional training, right? Your, cl your client should never be your teacher wholly, right? Your, cl your client will always be your teacher to some degree because they're telling you about themselves. They're sharing the, a narrative and a life history that you've, you know nothing about. So to, to some degree, they're always going to be your teacher. But there's some basics of all minority populations that you have a responsibility as a clinician to become educated about by attending trainings, by reading texts, by whatever it is that you need to do, you shouldn't be sitting down with somebody for the first time saying, tell me about this really basic thing about yourself or your community. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying all that. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is how you work with youth who are experiencing homelessness. So this, this kind of brings us back to both the direct service that we provide and then working at the systems level. 
So in Miami-Dade, the Alliance uh, actually serves as the co-chair agency. I serve as a co-chair member of the Helping Our Miami-Dade Youth Collective or HOMI Collective here in Miami, which is the uh, entity that is made up of over a hundred plus uh, agencies and organizations that support young people experiencing homelessness in Miami-Dade. Uh, our mission being to prevent and end youth homelessness in our county uh, by creating a system that's specifically created for uh, young people experiencing homelessness, which is very different from adult homelessness, right? So in that space, we advocate for specific policy changes with the Miami-Dade County Homeless Trust, which is the governmental agency responsible for addressing homelessness in our county, right? So we work closely with the school board, we work closely with advocacy organizations and a number of nonprofit entities, as well as mental health support agencies uh, in either behavioral health or, um, or and physical health uh, entities. So there's a lot of work that happens at that level in ensuring that young people who are experiencing homelessness uh, in the county are having very specific areas addressed. So education and employment, stable housing, uh, permanent connections, and well-being, which includes our behavioral health. For the Alliance, our, our position in that space is to advocate for policy change, especially as it relates to LGBTQ youth um, who are massively disproportionately impacted uh, both at the national level, but also when you look at the statistics here in Miami-Dade, uh, there's uh, severe disproportionality for our young folks. Um, so in that space, right, we're constantly looking at, so if we're looking at stable housing in Miami-Dade County for young people experiencing homelessness, what are the policies as it relates to LGBTQ youth, right? Are our shelters affirming? Um, are our young people who are trans actually being able to be placed in a safe uh, housing situation, right? Uh, that aligns with their identity. And so we do that at all of these various different levels. Um, and, and it's interesting to find, this is where that complexity very much comes in, uh, that sometimes agencies don't even know that they are they have this massive blind spot for as it relates to lgbtq youth and including our young people in their policies uh and being thoughtful uh and processing and responsible in that way um so that's a part of the education and then also the advocacy when sometimes you have to be concerned about pushback that that you may be receiving and whether that's really about oh well this is just how things have always been or is there a level of discrimination uh, that's actually underlying some of those decisions? Uh, so, so it's keeping a, a really close eye on that and then speaking up uh, frequently and, and using our position and our knowledge uh, as partners to, to be able to make that change, um, whether it's at the systems level or by partnering with agencies uh, to do trainings um, or to help them identify the trainings that they need. Yeah, that's something I think about with the shelters, right? Like historically, Shelters have been, there's a male shelter, there's a female shelter. And that's obviously going to be a huge issue, depending on then what the policies are that go along with that shelter, or the safety, as Mark was talking about, within the shelter, too, for young people. Right. And so under the Obama administration, there were very specific 
protections that were created in place are put into place, right? Uh, so that um, trans and gender non-conforming folks who are experiencing homelessness could be assured that they, when they went into a shelter, uh, that they would be placed into a bed um, that aligned with their identity, um, not based upon what the individual at the shelter decided, but based upon what that person um, made clear. And so now with the current administration, right, those protections have been rolled back. Um, and so there's, there's grave concern um, for young folks. And also, uh, you know, a lot of young people, um, particularly our LGBTQ young people in the space around safety, as Mark was noting, um, as it relates to going into a homeless shelter, that's, that's just not a choice um, that, that young people are going to make. Uh, to go into a shelter, it's unsafe. They experience violence in the shelters, uh, sexual assault. Um, and so there's a choice that uh, they make uh, for their own protection to couch surf um, and sometimes to sleep in places that are not meant for human habitation, right? So um, in abandoned homes and in cars, et cetera, because that's preferable to going into a shelter where their lives could be at risk, uh, unfortunately. So for the youth that you're working with who are experiencing homelessness, where are, where do they tend to stay? Are they in shelters or are they couch surfing? Are they outside? Like where are they typically staying? Right. So for the small handful of young folks who are, who we're serving, who are experiencing homelessness, um, all of them uh, currently, and for the most part have been uh, living in shelter in an emergency or in a transitional shelter that's specifically for young folks. Um, we do have uh, a couple who've also been at Lotus House um, who are safe there in the Rainbow Lotus program, which is specific to LGBTQ uh, folks as well. So yeah, so so for the young people that we're supporting, uh, we, we don't have folks who are living in a, a place not meant for human habitation. However, they have come to us in that situation, right? right. We don't, yeah, right. So um, they may be referred to us or, or come to us through the grapevine um, as a result of someone knowing of the support that we're going to be able to provide. Um, but certainly uh, maybe they are couch surfing and in a situation that which in, they're going to become uh, imminently homeless, right? They're only going to be able to stay there for a very short period of time. And then they connect with us and then we do our best to support them in order to get them into one of these shelters uh, or... Um, another young person recently was actually living in um, a house that was abandoned. Um, and, and then we, it took a, a little bit of time, right? Because Miami Day is still working on the uh, being able to rapidly house and transition our young people into shelter or into more stable housing. Um, but we were able to move that young person into um, a transitional housing facility. Something else I wanted to ask you about and. I'm just going to say it again. I think at some point we'll need to do like a follow-up episode or multiple because um, there's there's uh, so much there's we could talk about. Time. Yeah, there's never enough time, right? <laughs> you know, we've talked a lot about multiple issues that LGBTQ youth deal with, right? And some initial ways to work with them and some priorities in terms of safety, um, housing. I wanted to ask you, because you had mentioned this earlier about building resiliency and also building community, just thinking about like a strength, that strengths-based resiliency and how you work on building that resiliency within a young person and also within the community, the population you're working with. 
I think it's important to know, especially about homeless LGBTQ, that systems often fail those youth. Um, and you're talking about youth that need immediate emergency services. And there's often a lot of hoops to jump through. And when you're talking about teenagers who have learned to survive on their own, asking them to jump through hoops and participate in programming and take HIV tests and all these other things that they have to do just so that they can get a meal or a place to sleep or meet another case manager who's not going to ultimately help them after having done a full intake that took three sessions and all these hoops that they have to jump through. It's easier, as Pauline was saying, is to survive on your own than it is to rely on systems or shelter. So our youth come to us already with amazing resiliency. They know how to survive. They know how to get through the day-to-day. They know how to support each other. And I think any any homeless community will tell you that they rely on each other's resources and they are each other's greatest support, financial, um, food resource, whatever it is. So for our homeless youth, I think resiliency really relies more on the agency's perspective and making sure that we're consistent and that we're providing the services that they need, not what, they, what we think they need. And we don't know that unless we ask them what those services are. I feel like we make, we always, a good social work program will tell you that you start with the needs assessment, right? You don't create a program uh, based on what you think somebody needs. You find out what the community needs or the individual needs first. You do that assessment and then you find a way to support those people if they want it, right? So our, our youth, our homeless youth, our unstably housed youth come to us with more resiliency than most of us probably have because they've been forced to learn how to acquire that on their own and within the community. Resiliency for our youth that are stably housed, but maybe not in such affirming environments is different because a lot of that work is around uh, making, uh, supporting them in creating more salient gender identities and sexual orientation identities. And as a, as a clinician or for our care coordinators, we may be that first person that they meet that is LGBTQ identified. And it's like, oh my gosh, there's this person in front of me who like, I'm not going to be odd to, I'm not going to be weird to, who like appreciates me and, and isn't surprised by the things that I'm going to share, or I learn that they're not going to be surprised by the things I'm going to share. And having access to community increases resiliency. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people out there that reject labels. And I, 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 don't, I don't fall in that, that um, way of thinking. I think labels can be really um, wonderfully affirming for people because it helps define communities within communities. People can say, ah, there's this name for the way I feel. And there are other people that use this label too. And I can build resiliency with those people because I'm valid. I learned that I'm valid around them. I learned that I'm valid with them. They appreciate my contribution to that community. And through that, I can use that and other areas of my intersectional life, right? That at my core, I need to be confident in who I am. And that's where my resiliency is going to come from. And if I'm being told consistently that I am not who I am, that I'm not allowed to be who I am, that I'm not valued for who I am, I'm not valid for who I am, I'm going to be constantly questioning that. And for me to go on, I, I, I was doing a training at a school recently and somebody at the faculty meeting had said, how am I supposed to deal with this person, this youth who is telling me that 
their gender identity is preventing them from doing their homework or their schoolwork. We're talking about something that is so core to all of us, who we are, how we present ourselves, how we share ourselves with the world that is in conflict for this person. And they can't move past that right now to do some basic things to excel in your classroom. And I said to her, I would probably not be able to do the work either. And so for her, that was, she needed that, that understanding that there was a level of resiliency that this youth did not have yet that they needed so that they could grow into other spaces. That's a powerful story. I just think it's so important for that teacher to hear that and to get that understanding and that you're, the work you're doing is just so important. Do you, do you have like um, young people who help, I guess, like some sort of like advisory or board members or anything like that, like in leadership positions? So you're getting what those needs are and you're getting that feedback from them and that leadership from them? Yeah. So, so on two different levels, right? Um, for in the space of homelessness, uh, in the Homie Collective, which we're the co-chair entity of, there's actually a Youth Voice Action Council. So a group of 10 young folks uh, with lived experience, some who are actually experiencing homelessness um, right now, right, would fall under the federal definitions, um, who are informing the policies of the collective so that we're not making as best we can, there's gonna be errors for sure. Um, but as best we can, ensuring that there's like a feedback loop and, and to transform that from a feedback loop to actually having them as leadership in the homing collective, right? So now we've shifted it where they sit on the steering committee. They're not this like separate entity that then informs, they sit on the steering committee um, and can tell us right there. And then if we're talking about something like that's not, that's not it, right? That's not what's up. You need to really address what's happening with us on the ground um, uh, and acknowledge that you are outside of an understanding of what we need. Um, and then we'll make that shift and pivot. Um, and then also to have moved that Youth Voice Action Council so they sit on the steering committee of the community-based collective and are actually an official subcommittee of the homeless trust so that certain decisions do have to move through them in a very formal way. Um, and that's important when you're talking about systems training because we can transform and adjust things at the community level. Um, and that's wonderful, but you've got to get into um, the, the system itself, into the government uh, bureaucracy to, to affect change and to have those young people in leadership position and to, to ensure that they identify what type of professional development they need to be able to move in those spaces um, has been really key to witness this year. Uh, at the Alliance, we have uh, the Changemakers Leadership Development Programs, so our Changemakers Summer Institute. That is a program that is specifically designed to have young people, LGBTQ young people in Miami-Dade uh, actually lead this five day long, it's over the summer um, institute, right? So they're identifying the curriculum, they're uh, identifying the speakers and then contacting those speakers, assisting with the, or helping um, to identify how the, the whole program is going to run and then also the logistics. So we're really there to support them, help them to develop the skills and to, to run, run the logistics for them um, as they see fit. And so that, that particular program is intended so that there's these five young people who are change makers 
uh, facilitators, right? They're the leads for that year. And then there are young people who come and attend this five-day institute, right? And then have the opportunity to learn and build community um, with one another and then see these uh, leaders stand in their authority and in their power, right? Uh, who've identified the curriculum and who are really leading um, and, and then uh, over time potentially become those leaders in the following year. Uh, our intention, we've not been able to do it really this year, we were excited. 2020 uh, is the 10th year of the Changemakers Leadership Institute. Um, and we had uh, gained some funding um, from Gucci actually to produce a year long institute and program uh, as a result of COVID-19, uh, where we're needing to step back and reevaluate what that looks like. Cause this is an in-person institute for some 20 plus youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now that's, that's not really available to us. But our intention is to have those change makers be um, our internal organizational, um, like uh, essentially like a leadership board, right? To inform us about how we may need to shift some things um, in our organization or, or just what they would like to see so that we can make that come to fruition. That's awesome. It's really exciting. I love hearing about organizations that when they work with a population, that people from that population should be in leadership positions. So one of the things I like to do on the podcast is ask people how they got into this work. So how'd you get into this work? <laughs> do you want to go? go? Sure. Okay, I'll go. Um, so I am actually a lawyer by training. Uh, and uh, I went to law school after being a teacher in post-Katrina, New Orleans. I'm a native New Orleanian, actually. Um, but all basically through my my life, I knew that I was going to go to law school specifically to address uh, inequities um, as it relates to uh, young people who are pushed at the margins, right? Uh, That's as a result of my family background, Uh, my dad having been born in the 1940s in rural Mississippi, uh, Jim Crow, Mississippi as a black man uh, who was, uh, didn't have access to education, right? Um, and my mom being um, an immigrant from the Philippines and not having a lot of access um, to a lot of things herself, right? So I knew that I was going to go to law school acknowledging that um, my parents, my folks, didn't have the opportunity to come to uh, to fully live their potential, right? Um, both were incredibly honorable um, and had a wonderful dignity uh, and great intelligence, uh, but some of that wasn't able to come to full fruition. So um, I did become a teacher and then went to law school. And in that space, uh, I was focusing on human rights as it relates to young folks uh, and it worked at the University of Miami Children and Youth Law Clinic, um, where I focused oftentimes on systems and education. A lot of our young people are LGBTQ um, or, or had uh, certain issues in the home. All, all of them uh, were involved, uh, had child welfare involvement. So um, after that, I had moved on. After I graduated, I had a fellowship at the Miami Coalition for the Homeless where I was able to focus on civil rights issues for folks experiencing homelessness on the street and to work on developing the system of care uh, in Miami-Dade County uh, for for homeless youth specifically, right? Which is work that the Alliance together with the coalition started. 
So that's where the connection started happening, right? The former ED executive director of the Alliance for GLBTQ Youth, Carla Silva, who's an amazing social worker uh, from New York, um, she uh, really helped to push our community to create this work um, to really focus also on LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness. And so she was one of my mentors while I was at the Coalition for the Homeless. And as I was doing this work around youth homelessness, so many of the young people uh, we were working with supporting um, and, and advocating alongside uh, our LGBTQ youth. Um, and they really, I mean, I love them. You know, I, I care so deeply about them. Um, and that law degree, right, that I have is really meant to be of service um, to my community. Um, and, and I am also um, a cis hetero woman, right, in a leadership position um, of an LGBTQ youth organization. And so that, I, there was great pause for me uh, before I took this position and I actually didn't take it initially um, in, in great recognition of essentially what we spoke about earlier, right? Reflect the folks that you're supporting um, or who, who are you're, you're, you're serving, right? Um, and so there, there was a lot of conversations in the community um, that brought me to the final conclusion that I would um, take on this position, uh, but it's, it's very unique um, and it, it's, it's challenging, right? To know um, and to be cognizant of uh, when to step back, um, and when to uh, be alongside of, of your folks, right? And when to stand straight up behind, right? Um, as an advocate, uh, but, but always our young people are first. So that's that's kind of the, the little nutshell version of how I got into this particular position. Incredible honor and privilege. And I, I do take it as my life's work um, to be of service to our LGBTQ youth and LGBTQ youth and young people um, who are pushed at the margins um, because their dignity and their uh, right to live as their whole full selves um, is primary and basic. Thank you so much for sharing that story. It's, it's inspiring. It's a really powerful story. I, I really like hearing people's stories about how they got into the work they're doing. I think it's, I think people can relate to it. I think it's important to share who you all are and the, you know, cause you are people behind this work, you know? Um, so Mark, I'm excited to hear also from you, how you got into this. Yeah. Work. Um, my, my first memory that I, I was around three or four was a gender diverse memory. I had like taken my baby blanket and ripped it and wore it as a skirt and just thought I was the prettiest little thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, Funny enough, like my, I like there wasn't anybody around, but I knew I had done something wrong. I knew that I had done something bad, and I heard my dad coming into the room, and I took it off immediately. Um, so nobody had saw me do it, but I knew it was wrong. And um, ironically enough, it was my father who sewed up my baby blanket with my mom's sewing machine. Um, but those gender diverse experiences never left me. And um, I worked in drag on and off for 15 years. And it was a really um, awesome space for me to, um, to express myself in a different way, um, express myself in a safe environment, uh, to build community, to be with sisters, uh, to be with other gender diverse trans individuals who were performing gender, exploring gender, living their true selves. 
I actually found myself working in New York City in hotel management. I did that for 10 years and um, felt that there were other things in life that were more important um, that I really wanted to explore. And during the Great Recession, I took the opportunity and the financial um, benefits that were available at the time to go back to school. And I started in undergrad and went through my psychology undergrad, minored in sociology, fell in love with social work, um, went right into my master's program and majored in clinical social work at Silverman School of Social Work at Hunter College. Um, I'm really, really fortunate for the education that I received there. I think it's a phenomenal school. Um, did training at William Allison White Institute, which is a psychoanalytic institute in New York City as well, um, which really allowed me to go even deeper into my clinical work to have a stronger understanding of that interpersonal dynamics that are happening within oneself and between people. Uh, so the work that I do, uh, I, I was bullied my entire like academic career um, from first grade until 12th grade. And um, a lot of the work that I do is uh, to allow youth a different experience than I had. So there's a deep emotional connection to the work that I do. Um, which is challenging at times because serving your own community is not easy. Um, working with mm-hmm. youth who are within the confines of their guardians is not always easy. Uh, sometimes you just want to snatch them and, and hold them and, and protect them. And, and you know, you can't, you know, that they've got to go back to sometimes not such great affirming um, spaces that are continuing to cause harm. Um, so that makes it challenging, but it also makes it, worth it because they're, I love those tiny little light bulb moments that happen in the work where a youth just has a a deeper level of understanding about themselves or the community or what they need or what they want and how they can express that. And where a guardian sees things from a different perspective and um, you can see them sit back and really process what you're sharing and what you're saying. And it means something different when it's coming, when it's not coming from the source sometimes where it's somebody else validating their child's experience and they can say, okay, so what they're saying is real. Um, What I I say often is like one of the best things you can do, one of the most affirming things you can do for an LGBTQ person is to say that I believe you. Like you don't have to, you don't have to explain yourself if you don't want to, just saying who you are is enough. And it's my responsibility to just say, I believe you. And if that changes at any point in the future, I believe you then as well. And so if you allow me, like, as your clinician or as your care coordinator or as your supervisor, whatever it is, to, like, walk that journey with you, it's an enormous honor to be able to share that with our clients and our families and with our team. Um, It's a great privilege to be able to work with the people that I work with and the community and families and youth that I work with. Thank you so much for sharing your story and also you know, honoring the work you do, but the part you shared at the end there. And I just want to really thank you both for taking the time to come on here. What you've talked about has just been so educational and so important. And thank you so much for doing the work in the community. Yeah, thank you for having us. I really appreciate you sharing space with us and allowing us to share our community and our agency with you and your listeners. Yes, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. Uh, and and it, it is really an honor to be able to do this work, right? And, and to share this with your listeners. 
Um, we do hope that they'll follow us on social media. Uh, you can find us on all social media uh, at the handles at GLBTQ Alliance. Um, and you can also find us online at www.glbtqalliance.org. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll put that information in the show notes too. So people have access to it there. Thank you so much yeah, again. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.